Today, I'm delighted to be chatting with Jim McMillan. Right from the start, Jim knew that finding the best manuka bushes in New Zealand and having access to remote locations meant building great relationships with landowners throughout the country's best manuka honey-producing regions. As it's always been, a big part of Jim's job is working closely with farmers, local iwi and the Department of Conservation. He's dedicated to protecting New Zealand's unique environment while working with these landowner partners to leave the land in a better state for future generations. Full ownership from hive to jar means Jim stands behind every drop of the honey the True Honey Company produces and is fully traceable. As the industry grows, Jim is dedicated to making sure that honey lovers worldwide can trust the True Honey Company. It's a name for high-rated, ethically produced and top-notch quality honey manuka. And I know I've tasted it and it is delicious. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. It's um, great to see you. Evening time in New Zealand, uh, morning time in the UK. Um, but welcome to the podcast. Well, th- thank you, Sean. It's um, great to be here. Tell us about um, you and what you do for work. Uh, back about seven, eight years ago, there's quite a rise in demand for manuka honey around the globe. And I pretty well spotted like um, extensive stands of manuka and some of the most remote pristine parts of our country and come up with the idea of essentially uh, producing and harvesting that and then I guess right through to developing our own brand and and selling it around the globe so that's my uh, short version of I guess we're the beginning to where we're at now so and what do I do for a job now I guess um, really I get to spend um, and have (coughs) had the privilege of spending a lot of time, I guess, flying around in uh, some of our most beautiful, remote, pristine parts of our country, uh, producing, I guess, some of the purest manuka honey in the world. So, And so what's the most exciting thing? I, I don't know. I guess sometimes it can be a fine line between exciting, exhilarating, and I guess depending on the individual, I guess for some people maybe um, a little bit frightening, I guess, as well. But, um, but probably... Uh, a big part of our operation because we're working in, I guess, some of these very remote, uh, beautiful, untouched locations around New Zealand. Um, we do what we call uh, a lot of human sling work. So, because essentially there's no bulldozers or heavy machinery or anything like that, we're just working with the natural landscape. And what we're actually doing is, um, or what we need to do and do do is um, a helicopter we operate and then we have a big. 100 foot long line underneath us and then actually have personnel so we actually are slinging I guess team members into the remote locations uh, to then unhook the hives and let the bees out and let them go to work gathering the nectar I guess so that's probably quite a exciting part for a lot of the members of the team I guess um, swinging a 100 foot below the helicopter getting dropped into uh, the middle of the bush in some pretty remote places but for me, uh, exciting, probably really just more the the privilege, I guess, of being able to work in some of those beautiful backcountry locations. I just feel you know, truly honoured, really. So, yeah, I mean, the New Zealand countryside um, or landscape is phenomenal. I mean, I, I've I have been to New Zealand once. I was on my way to Australia, so all I saw was flying in and landing at the airport and then taking off again. But it is, it's it's like nothing else in the world. Have you done the, the drop 
from the helicopter, or have you just piloted the yeah. helicopter? Uh, no, no, I, I guess one of those people that like to learn everything from the ground up. So, uh, in the first, even though I was a commercial pilot and had a lot of experience, I actually got uh, another pilot in when we first began, and I was actually the one on the ground on the end of the line because I guess um, you know always like to. I used to try to lead by example and I wanted to know what those guys were dealing with on the ground and I guess how they needed to operate in that environment and it allowed me also to gain a greater understanding and respect I guess for the manuka bush and the flowering and the process involved in producing sort of high to ultra high grade manuka. So yeah I, I have spent uh, quite a lot of time on the end of that line uh, being flown around so I know exactly what it's like and I did very much enjoy it. I thought it was great. So uh, nothing like getting, I guess. Yeah, it's the, like an extreme sport. A little bit, yeah. And so where do the bees come from? So you you drop the bees in the particular locations. Where do they come from originally? Um, I guess we've got uh, well, a reasonable size apiary team, so like a, a team of uh, beekeepers, uh, and queen rarers, so we, we we breed and raise all of our own queens, and then we've got a team of about 20, 25 odd beekeepers that are, I guess, uh, caring for uh, and tendering to our bees, um, uh, so they're caring for them, and then they leading up to the Manuka flow each year, they will um, uh, prepare them ready for deployment onto the Manuka block, so they'll get, uh, they'll gather them up, from their sites, they'll be spread out, uh, bring them all together, prepare them ready for the Manuka block, and then we'll transport them to the location, uh, normally during the night time, so it's cooler for the bees and puts less stress onto them. And then once they arrive at the, I guess what we'd call our launch site, then the helicopter will arrive first thing in the morning at daylight and start essentially flying them into the blocks. All the bees are in the hives and they're all locked in basically. So then the guy on the ground that gets flowing in on the end of the sling, um, he's receiving them on the other end, uh, finding a nice sort of home for them for the next four to six weeks, and then letting the bees out, and then they're going to work uh, collecting nectar from the manuka flower. So this is quite a complex operation. You're sourcing the, the land, you, you're raising the, the bees, creating the hives, deploying them to the location, and let you know, letting the bees do the rest, and then you collect the honey. What happens to the bees once you've collected the honey? Well, I guess what would happen, like once the the manuka, so the hives are all in on the remote block and the bees have been collecting manuka nectar and making manuka honey, um, and then when the flowering is coming to an end, so normally the manuka flowering will last for somewhere maybe around about a four to six week period, um, so at the end of that four to six week period, uh, basically we'll we'll go back in at daylight early in the morning, and we'll uh, the guy on the end of the line gets flown in to every single site where there will be a group of hives, and he closes all the doors, so he locks the bees in because it's early in the morning and they're still tucked up in bed essentially, and then the helicopter will start, I guess, uh, retrieving or removing those hives and flying them out to what we'd call a harvest site and we'll have a team of beekeepers there that will essentially be checking the bees over and harvesting the honey from them and then they'll essentially be transported to their next location so they might go back onto another manuka block 
after then, or they may be uh, brought back to our home base and spread around on what we call their host sites, where they spend a big part of the year. There's a depletion in, in kind of in bees around the world, and I was wondering if you had a problem with that, a similar problem to that in New Zealand. Probably New Zealand is a, a little bit of an exception where yeah, we don't have any shortage of bees here. Uh, I guess on the the rise and the demand of manuka honey has probably driven quite a lot of it. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of, I guess, beehives or bees being bred and raised. And um, uh, yeah, so we don't have any shortage of bees in New Zealand, uh, fortunately. There are a number of different, uh, I guess, diseases and uh, mites uh, that can affect the bees but I guess with very good husbandry and a good balanced uh, I guess nutritious diet uh, uh, a bit like most livestock they, they will you know they will fend really well so generally the bees are, are pretty strong and healthy so in England, a lot of department stores have have started to um, have uh, put hives on top of the rooftops to support bees and they're encouraging yep. people in their homes you know if they're living in flats or houses you know to um, have plants that would sustain I suppose colonies um, and there's a there's been a quite a big growth in um, individuals uh, harvesting their own honeys and selling them and I I mean I buy honey from a guy in, in I think he's in Kent so but it's interesting to hear that in New Zealand you don't have that uh, a similar problem. Yeah, plenty of bees in New Zealand. I think, you know, certainly in certain countries where there might be more, I know, uh, monoculture, I guess, when bees are on, like uh, monocultural type species for extended periods of time, uh, can certainly start to have a detrimental impact on their health. And probably more so, I guess, some, you know, very heavy, you know, commercialised or industrialised farming operations where they might be using more excessive amounts of different insecticides in that are very damaging and harmful to the bees they'll certainly um, have a major negative impact on their health and well-being um, but yeah we don't seem to have too much of an issue in New Zealand. I want to talk a little bit about luxury now because the manuka honey has always been seen as as a luxury product um, partly I think or more so due to the the cost of it but I'm thinking, you know, listening to the story you're telling, it's, you know, there's, um, and especially with the honey that you're producing, there's a much more considered approach to raising the bees. I wondered whether you think that's part of that luxury experience, is that your whole ethos behind the way you um, you raise the bees, you pl place them in these um, um, remote locations, then harvest the honey. I wondered if that's part of um the luxury experience that you pass on then to the customers uh yeah i, I would certainly um i certainly believe that i know like manuka honey itself is in my mind uh i guess it's a precious gift from nature really and um and as we've already touched on a little bit some of the extreme lengths that we go to to produce it uh certainly uh like some of the purest and highest grade manuka honey are very very difficult to produce so we go to some very extreme lengths uh, I guess really push the boundaries of, of what's possible in a manuka honey production but the I guess the you know a big part of it I guess also the 
the story behind it all as well. So I guess that's where we see it fitting into the luxury space. It's something you know there's not very much of it all around the world, and um, that's a pretty amazing honey type uh, that has properties that uh, uh, very few other honeys have at that sort of level. So I guess it's a, a very rare scarcity, um, precious gift from nature. I guess so. Yeah, and I think you know, I think that's something that resonates, isn't it? Because you think about this natural aspect. You know, this is something produced by, in effect, an animal. Um, it's not mass produced because it's determined by their capacity to, you know, themselves pollinate the flowers and then produce the honey. So. It's a very different kind of, I'm just thinking, it's a very different kind of luxury because it's not something that is produced in a factory. No, not at all. It's 100% produced by uh, nature, really, maybe with um, a bit of assistance to get them into some of these remote places. Uh, but outside of that, uh, I guess it's, yeah, it is. It's left up to na- nature, essentially. Just the, the, the cogs are turning. Just thinking, you know, just thinking about exactly that is that, you know, when... Um, we are um, told about luxury or when we sold luxury within, you know, within a commercial market, it's typically the story of, oh, it's rare or there's heritage um, or there's, you know, limited numbers or, you know, limited production runs. But it's always spoken about in those terms. It's very seldom spoken about in the terms in which um, <clears throat> you describe um, how this honey is harvested and, um, you know, the complexities of producing um, the Manuka honey that you do in New Zealand. I wanted to ask you about, um, is it methylglyoxal, the MGO? Uh, yes, that's correct. Phew. Um, what is that? Because you see it on the bottle, so there's 500 or 200 or, you know, I mean, on yours it starts at, with your honey, it starts at 500, which is, is relatively high, I'm presuming. Yeah. Um, what is, What is the MGO? Yeah. Well, if you if you think it's of interest, I'm happy to try to give you a bit of a, a 101 on uh, Manuka honey, which will then explain, hopefully, I guess around the MGO or the methylloxal part. Um, so uh, here goes. Um, okay. I guess firstly, uh, you've got. It's a little bit confusing, um, but I think you should understand it, no problem. So firstly, we've got the manuka plant uh, that flowers uh, for four to six weeks of the year, um, generally in the uh, early parts of summer, um, maybe late spring, early summer, depending on the geographical location. Uh, so under the right conditions, and it, uh, so the manuka flower uh, generally doesn't produce a lot of nectar. It needs some quite special conditions, so uh, pretty directly correlated with temperature and soil moisture around the level of nectar production. So if you test the nectar in uh, Manuka flower, it doesn't actually contain any MGO or methylloxal, but it contains uh, high levels of another compound called um, digoxyacetone or DHA. So the minute that the bee comes along and it uh, sucks up the nectar out of the manuka flower and ingests it into its honey sac, it starts the enzyme process of converting that nectar into honey, but it also, at the same time, which is, I guess, something pretty special and unique, 
that starts converting the DHA or dihydroxyacetone into methyl glyoxal. So then the bee heads on back to the hive and he stores it at the, the honey in one of the cells and one of the frames or in the comb. And then over time, uh, once that enzyme process of turning the nectar into honey starts the conversion of DHA into MGO, that continues over time. Um, so when we harvest the honey and we test the honey, we can test it for the, the level uh, milligrams per kilogram of dihydroxyacetone and methylgloxal and then based on I guess our experience and knowledge or some of the independent laboratories we can forecast what level of MGO that honey will end up at and over time so um, generally it can take uh, you haven't just got the production side but for the honey to mature so for a large part of that DHA to convert into MGO uh, might take a period of somewhere around about 12 to maybe 15 months. So that's sort of like the maturation period uh, for that honey to be ready to be packed and sold. So I guess um, that's the first part of the equation. I guess the second part is originally when you know it was discovered that Manuka honey had some unique properties. It was on the back of a gentleman called... Um, uh, Professor Peter Molan uh, and he was conducting some research using different types of New Zealand honeys for treating uh, like staphylococcus type infections uh, essentially like antibiotic resistant uh, infections that they were having trouble treating with um, I guess standard antibiotics and he was trialling honey on it and what he found because uh, uh, I guess most of us know that all honeys contain uh, levels of antibacterial and antimicrobial properties um, but what they found is when that honey came into contact with peroxide in our blood or in our saliva it was actually uh, deactivating or uh, eliminating those antibacterial antimicrobial properties in all of the honeys apart from Manuka. So that's where I guess Professor Peter Molan came up with the term non-peroxide activity um, and then I guess when they looked further into it so they started to analyze the manuka honey further to try to understand why it had those properties and it retained all of its uh, antibacterial and antimicrobial properties uh, was they found that it had up to 100 times higher levels of a compound called methylglox or MGO so that's really how that come about and I guess when you talk about a 300 or 500 or 850 or 1000 um, uh, MGO, what that's telling us is in that jar of honey, any time, I guess within the best before date, that honey will contain a minimum of 500 milligrams per kilogram of methylgloxal. And that's the compound that I guess essentially makes Monica very unique. It does have, I guess, a lot of other very beneficial properties. But that's the one that really makes it unique from all other honeys is the level of methyl gloxal present in that honey. Makes makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. How how is it measured? Um, it's this. How can, how do you tell the difference? Yeah, it's essentially, I guess, just a laboratory test. Um, I, I don't know all the exact intricacies around how the test is conducted, but they've got obviously a way within. 
the laboratories to uh, identify out the milligrams of methyltoxal present and it, the measurement or the test comes back as a I guess a milligrams per kilogram being like 500 milligrams per kilogram of methyltoxal in that jar if it's a 500 MGO. Can you identify the MGO from the individual hive that have produced a batch of honey and then go back to that same location with another hive and would that produce this honey of the same quality? Potentially, yes. Um, so I guess the location that the hives are placed is one part of the equation of producing sort of high to ultra higher grade manukas. But there's a lot of other factors that come into it. So depending on the, I guess, the particular season, there may be, you know, it's quite possible that there may be some other uh, species of trees or bushes growing in the area that might be, a, you know, a biennial or something. They might only flower once every second year or some species might only flower heavily maybe once every five years or six years or seven years. So I guess you could go back the next year and if there happened to be like, um, I don't know what a common species you might know, but a, a rata or a tree or something like that that can flower quite heavily and it happens to be flowering that second year, the quality may be way down. And then there's other factors around, depending on what other nectar sources may be present, but uh, uh, to produce really pure high-grade manuka honey, it's like uh, it's vitally important around exact timing of placement. So trying to place uh, the hives right in the centre of the concentration of the manuka resource, right at the time that the manuka flower is starting to produce nectar. So that way the bees will go directly onto that nectar source and by by nature they don't like changing nectar sources too much when they're storing honey back in the hive and they'll tend to stay on that, I guess, on that manuka flower or nectar uh, for the duration of the flowering period as long as it's producing nectar. So then at the other end, I guess, when it comes time to remove them, so it's also very vital around removing them at exactly the right time as soon as that manuka nectar is tailing off. Otherwise, those same bees, they'll start to seek out and source another nectar source somewhere. And then that can have a dilution effect of diluting the, the percentage of manuka and, I guess, essentially diluting the milligrams per kilogram of methyltoxal present in that honey as well. So yeah, there's a few more factors than just location. I'm just thinking now about um, blockchain management because um, I'm thinking if you uh, you know where the flowers are um, and you can you identify the or, do, or does this make no difference? I mean, I'm just kind of running on a tangent here. Can you identify the quality of the manuka bush before you send the hives out? Do you do? I mean, yes. Is that something you do? Yeah, if you wanted to do it scientifically, you could uh, go and do prior. You'd have to do it the season prior when it's flowering, but you could sample, uh, take samples of the nectar uh, from the flower, the monica flower, and test it for the level of DHA or digoxyacetone, which will give you a very strong indication around what quality or NGO level of honey you, you will produce from that block. Um, so you can do that, but really in reality, I guess a lot of that comes down to our own individual 
knowledge or IP that we've, I guess, learnt over years of producing high-grade honey. So I guess we've become quite familiar with the things to look for. Um, but in my opinion and view, uh, very commonly, one of the biggest things that affects, I guess, the the methyldeoxyl level or MGO level in the honey is actually the other nectar sources that are present. So that's why it becomes so vital about getting the hives right into the centre of the manuka resource right at the right time. So if you don't do that, you run the risk of diluting with still other good honeys, but if you're in the business of producing pure high-grade manuka honey, uh, I guess that's not an option. Am I correct in thinking where the manuka bushes are growing, there's no there's no other source of nectar for the, the bees? So they are immediately attracted to the manuka bush as opposed to, oh, I don't know, whatever might be growing, whatever else might be growing in the region. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's a probably... <laughs> Uh, I think so, but I guess it's probably quite a general sort of statement because I guess we've got so many different locations and areas and they're all a little bit different. So I guess for the True Honey Company or us, we we purposely, I guess, identified and partnered with uh, landowners of, I guess, a very pure Manuka resource in some very remote areas where I guess not everybody has the ability to do that. So I guess a lot of different areas, uh, roadside access or more you know, residential, a uh, whole raft of things. You know, there might be a whole raft of different nectar sources, I guess close to commercial farming operations. A very common one would be like clover. Yeah, because I mean, it's quite particular what you do, isn't it? I mean, flying hives out to the remote parts of the country. And I mean, do you know of any other company that goes to those extremes to harvest honey? Um, yeah, we're certainly not the only business that does it, but I would uh, be pretty confident to say that we're probably the only company in New Zealand is that that's all we do. Um, so there's other companies that might try and have a go and do little bits of it. It's a little part of the operation, but that approach and strategy is our operation, I guess. So that's all we do. We just specialise in producing high to ultra high grade some of the purest manuka honey in New Zealand. I guess I'm just thinking about the extremes that you go to to harvest this honey um, and then jar it and, and um, I mean, bottle it and, and ship it around the world. Why do you think manuka honey resonates so much with um, people? I think uh, initially uh, a lot of it was probably on the back of the, you know, uh, initial research findings by uh, Dr. Peter Molan. Uh, which sort of spread around the globe and the awareness of it. I guess if we think about honey itself, it's obviously been around for a very long time and um, uh, uh, and probably been a part of a lot of our lives, really. Um, so I guess once it was discovered that manuka honey had these unique properties, uh, being the uh, very high levels of methyldeoxyl, which is giving it the uh, non-peroxide antibacterial properties um, and being a gift from nature uh, I guess it's pretty hard not to like I guess. Tell us a bit about the health benefits of manuka honey because I was reading on um, numerous websites you know just specifically respiratory um, 
if one has respiratory problems, that uh, Manuka honey is meant to be very good. I was also reading about, uh, I think it was on your website, that some people use Manuka honey as a face mask. I mean, they're, <laughs> you know, multi, it's multi, multi-use, isn't it? Just tell us a bit about what you, yeah. kind of your interpretation of the health benefits. Yep. Um, yeah, I guess firstly I'd say that, you know, we, as a company, we are probably were not involved in, I guess, the medical research side behind the honey and they've just focused on I guess trying to be very very good at producing it but it's been quite incredible really um I guess the I know experiences uh, have seen heard uh, countless pretty amazing results and good stories and yeah the variety of uses that it's used for is quite incredible really so I guess whether it's um for healing a you know, antibiotic uh, resistant wound or burns like severe burns and just the way in which i guess it not only can kill off the infection but also the healing of the skin uh, at the same time i've seen firsthand uh well myself and, and family members and numerous other people um I guess real hand results and have been super impressed and that was one of the things that really drew me to Manuka Honey I guess were the uh, the benefits of uh, a natural product from nature like that um, I've heard of yeah certainly like uh, skin care um, face masks um, acne uh, sinus problems um, uh, for gut health well-being uh, yeah I've heard I couldn't remember all of them, but there's so many different stories and examples that people have used it for and experienced, um, I guess, uh, pleasing results at the end of the day. So, yeah, quite amazing, I guess, you know, uh, what something from nature can do. Um, hopefully, as we move forward, uh, you know, there'll be further and further uh, validation around, you know, the medicinal uh, properties of Manuka and certainly can see it playing a, an increasing role, certainly in uh, wound healing and maybe general health and well-being. So, what is the difference between an MGO of five hundred and um, what is the highest that you, you do? Is it um, something like seventeen hundred or nineteen hundred? Yeah, I' pretty confident um, to date that yeah, our company has actually produced the highest rated or grade or purest uh, Manuka honey recorded in the world and that was um, bottled as a as a 1,900 MGO. So what does it mean? It just really means the uh, the concentration of MGO or methyl bloxyl is, I guess, four times higher than a 500, uh, essentially. Um, and honey... The volume of honey made at that level is so scarce. I guess it does really put that into uh, a luxury offering, just because there's such a very small amount of it um, around the world, and on the back of the demand for manuka honey, and I guess people that want the very best of something uh, to indulge. Uh, I think the the 1900 uh, MGO um, product that we released, we actually did a joint. Uh, release with um, Harrods in London actually and um, uh, they took the entire batch of that honey and I think it's retailing for 
circa I know it's like five thousand New Zealand dollars for a two hundred and thirty gram jar, uh, whatever that might be in UK pounds at the moment. Um, but that, that that's at the extreme end, extreme end of the spectrum. So then, do you test every every hive that comes back to the center? Uh, not every hive. Um, or well, I guess we do in a roundabout sort of way, but not individually, because normally, you know, we've got a, a block or an area of Manuka that may be, you know, several hundred acres or hectares, um, and we will place a number of hives within that block that's all very, very similar, uh, and that'll be confined within that area. So generally, uh, when those hives are removed and the honey is harvested, uh, which we do through all of our own facility, uh, we would have what we'd call a batch, I guess. So that block may make up a batch. I think uh, depending on what size of batching tank that you've got, we've got um, about a three, four, four ton uh, batching tank. So it might be in four ton batches. So every batch that will then be, there'll be a sample taken from that batch uh, right at the time of extraction. It'll be tested for a whole raft of different compounds. So not just MGO, it'll be tested for dihydroxyacetone, uh, MGO or methyldroxyl and then recently or a couple of years back the New Zealand government actually developed and imposed a, a definition for Manuka honey to try to I guess give consumers confidence around the globe, around the authenticity that they were buying the real deal. So they brought in, they identified uh, about half a dozen different unique uh, markers within Manuka honey to then create a definition so to be able to package and uh, label honey out of New Zealand as Manuka it needs to meet all of those criteria set by the Ministry of Primary Industries so we test for all of them and then we also do a raft of other testing as well just to validate I guess the purity around the honey so it might be uh, C4 sugar levels which is a indication whether there's been any artificial sugar added uh, we test for uh, maybe like glyphosate residues um, just to prove that there's no residue of any um, agrochemical present um, yeah there's quite a list maybe up to 25 odd tests that we're doing on each batch then that honey's put into drums and it's left to mature and then yeah as it gets closer to being ready we do some more basic tests again on it. And does it expire? Because uh, uh, typically honey doesn't go off. So does this, you, you, you mentioned earlier a sell-by date, but is there a sell-by date because it loses its potency or do you just, it's a requirement to put a sell-by date on it? Um, no, no, you're 100% correct there. So I guess, um, yes, you know, like uh, honey's been, uh, bees are very clever in the way in which they know exactly how much moisture to remove from the honey you know, through their own dehydration process and then once they cap off a cell with wax I guess it becomes airtight so yeah once honey is produced like that it will last as long as it's left untouched uh, for hundreds if not thousands of years potentially but the the unique compound in Manuka uh, that makes it unique being the MGO is actually unstable so as I said when the bee first collects the nectar, there's actually no MGO at that point, but there's levels of DHA or dihydroxyacetone. So what happens over time 
as the DHA goes down and the MGO goes up. So it's converting the DHA into MGO, but then it'll get to a point that the DHA will start to become exhausted um, and the MGO will start to come back down again. So that's why, uh, for example, say that um, you know, if I was to use the maybe a 500 MGO um, jar of honey, if that's what you tried, so when that's packaged, um, we can guarantee that that'll be you know, at or above or have a minimum of 500 milligrams per kilogram of methyldeoxal present. And then maybe that, that jar may have a, a three-year shelf life, for example. After one and a half years, the reality is um, that jar of honey will probably uh, would have increased the NGO level, so it'll probably be sitting at more like maybe 600 or even 620, 630, uh, 650 even. And then maybe halfway through uh, its best before date, it should be getting close to its peak. And then by the end of the best before date, it'll be back down at around the 500 or above, basically. So that's uh, that's how it works. Essentially, it's unstable. It grows and develops or converts, and then it'll degrade over time. The honey itself will be good for hundreds of years, but the MGO won't. Who knew that the world of honey was so complex? <laughs> Jim, what attracted you to this? You know, to moving from aviation as a, moving from a helicopter pilot to to honey i mean i know you said you you know flew over the you were flying around and noticed the landscape and and saw manuka bushes and things like that but it sounds like there's much more to the story than than that because you are very passionate about what you do yep i guess really um bit of a for me um i guess a bit of an outdoor sort of person and um, i guess uh, really enjoy and care for the environment around us. Um, uh, so I guess to be able to have the privilege of producing such a gift from nature and working in some of the beautiful backcountry locations, um, I guess a bit of a dream job, really. Um, uh, yeah, so I guess what, what attracts me, I love, I love the fact that it's a natural product. Um, it, it truly amazes me. I guess some of the beneficial properties of honey, I guess, um, and, and I love that. Uh, I'm really excited about the future. Uh, I'm sure that there'll be further, uh, you know, beneficial properties or um, benefits, um, maybe more to the point, discovered, and not just from Manuka honey, but from other natural products as well. And so I think it's good, something that uh, we'll probably, you know, potentially underestimated or disregarded a little bit. Um, and I, I personally really like that, and I love the I love the environment we work in. But uh, as much I guess the developing the relationships with a lot of those landowners from some of those very remote corners of our country is something also that you know I very much cherish. Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a it's an amazing an amazing story. Um, it doesn't sound like a job at all to me. I mean, being out, flying around <laughs> with a helicopter, looking after bees, it sounds, uh, you know, ideal. Pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thinking about, I just want to go back to where we were because I was slightly distracted by the story. Um, <clears throat> thinking about the bees and the harvesting, what role does technology play in 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 the business? Pretty big, really. Um, I've always been... A pretty big fan, of, I guess, you know, 
utilizing, I guess, both innovation and technology, really. Um, but I don't know, right in the early stages of the business, give you one example. At the time, there was a real lack of transparency and visibility, I guess, through the production chain. Uh, and when I say that, I'm talking about the relationship between the beekeeper and maybe the the landowner or the owner of the Monica resource. Um, so one thing that we did um, right at the beginning uh, of starting the business was we developed the software platform we called um, TrueView, and that was really to provide the landowner with a true view of what was going on. And within that platform, I guess they have, uh, for example, their uh, property boundary uploaded, um, all of the hive sites, um, I guess essentially everything related to the production of manuka honey from their land and I guess the test results of all of that honey, uh, everything right through the whole entire production chain to provide them complete visibility and transparency of that. But as we developed the system, we actually started to realise we could turn it into a very powerful job management tool as well. So we've turned that programme uh, not just for the benefit of our landowners, but also for the benefit of us as a team to enable us to have a very smart, I guess, a uh, work tool really around each block, uh, each you know, uh, season, each placement, the different sites, how many hives are going where. It creates all of our job sheets and work schedule for all of our operations. But that would be one thing. Um, maybe in addition to that, I guess with our aircraft, we use um, satellite tracking technology. Um, in the vehicles, we use, I guess, uh, again, satellite tracking and vehicle servicing maintenance technology. That would be a couple of the first things that come to mind on the production side. And then I guess on the the brand side of the equation, you know, I, I, I truly believe that you know, the world's a pretty amazing place in this um, day and age and our ability to connect uh, with each other and with um, people right around the globe, uh, literally, you know, a click of a button uh, is something that I'm sure our elders or ancestors could have never ever even imagined. So I guess to have that connectivity uh, and being able to connect, um, especially in recent times, I guess with the likes of um, the COVID pandemic, ability to connect with our customers around the world is you know, something to be cherished and embraced really. So. And I was wondering, what about the, has the technology changed in the way you test the actual honey? I mean, are you looking for, uh, I suppose, are you looking for different things now within the honey? Because just into, I, you know, just thinking about um, origin. So I know on the website, it says that you can trace the honey back to a specific place. Is that correct? 100%. So within our TrueView platform, uh, essentially like every drop of honey is made, uh, we can link it right back to the uh, exact location or property that each drop was produced from. So I guess when we are making a, maybe a 500 MGO batch of honey to jar up and box off, uh, every drum of honey that's gone into that batch, we can track it right back to its origin uh, 100%. So Yes, we can provide 100% assurance around the, I guess, the origin and authenticity of every drop. Yeah. And I was just wondering, I mean, this is a, 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 this is really a side question. Could you clone the flowers? 
and then reproduce the flowers? Um, potentially. That's um, a trick question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess for me, um, myself personally, I guess I, and our business, our operation, um, I guess we we love the fact of, I guess, working with nature, I guess, from the, the honey side of the equation and, and the manuka bush. Um, so, yeah, I think we'll probably stay pretty focused on that path, really. Yeah, well, it slightly defeats the object by doing that because then it removes, I guess, it it, it removes the, the luxurious nature of um, what that act, the individual flowers are producing, doesn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's certainly been, there's been quite reasonable amounts of plantings going on. So I guess, um, you know, collection of seeds and, uh, you know, analysing of different uh, performance of some of the substrains that are growing in the different geographical regions around the country and been some, not huge areas, but some reasonable areas of um, uh, plantings of manuka that's been occurring, so. No, it's a, it's a, it is an amazing story, and um, you know, you, when one thinks about this idea of luxury, and I, I said earlier, you know, you're immediately, um, one is immediately drawn to kind of product and product classifications. Not often do you get to understand luxury from a perspective of of natural growth, harvest, um, interest in landscape. I mean, this it's it's quite unique. This um, this story. Jim, I wanted to end um, this uh, really insightful chat. I've learned quite a lot about honey that I never knew, and I'm sure the listeners have um, as well. Um, oh, no, there was just one thing I wanted to ask you, talking about technology before we end, is have you ever thought or have you done anything with VR? Because I was thinking, you know, looking at the films on your website, um, I was thinking how amazing that would be if there was a VR experience. Yep. No, uh, interesting you say that, Sean. Um, yeah, it's literally a project that we're working on right now, um, which has sort of come about a little bit from, I guess, the, the COVID situation around the world and um, our lack of ability to be able to bring, I guess, anybody to New Zealand and, and show them what we do. And um, and also, I guess, the more people that we talk to, the more we realise actually just quite how... Um, special and um, some of the extreme lengths we're actually going to to produce this honey and uh, yes I were in the process in the well, relatively early stages of putting together some I guess VR um, type uh, footage and imagery that we can use uh, and to be able to share with people around the globe really so we're just working through some of the finer details of that but I'm pretty excited to be able to roll that out and I guess share that um with people over the not too distant future, hopefully. So yeah, I mean that would be a uh, you know you might be able to get to uh, sense and feel what it feels like being on the end of the line without having to be on it. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to be on the end of the line. I think that sounds would be an amazing experience to experience what you do. You know, going up in a helicopter with you know the beehives and just being part of an you know that i think would be amazing um, and to share this knowledge with other people is 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 a privilege so i thank you for that and as i end with all my conversations i wanted to ask you what your luxury is fresh air open spaces and spending time either on in or around the ocean 
Jim McMillan, thank you so much for joining us on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, Sean, and uh, yeah, lovely to meet you, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our sponsors, Intellect Books. Don't forget, you can catch up on all our previous episodes at inpursuitofluxury.com or your chosen platform. We look forward to seeing you again on the next episode of In Pursuit of Luxury.